Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today's our Pali Canon in English study group. It's Saturday at this same time where we study the words of the Buddha through this book series titled The Words of the Buddha. We're just restarting this program in the last few weeks and we're in volume two. Volume two is titled Walking the Path with the Buddha. And today we're studying chapters 31 through chapters 40. People have been reading this book all throughout the week, and then we come together and study those chapters in class. We actually display these chapters on the screen. We read the chapters together. We discuss the chapters and help you to understand what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime so that then you can move those teachings into your life in order to improve your life practice, which improves the condition of the mind. By studying the words of the Buddha, you can see very clearly what did he actually teach and what did he not teach, so that then with that truth about what he actually taught, you don't believe his teachings, but instead you go off and practice them to independently discover the truth and acquire wisdom. And if you're just joining us for the first time, these books are available for free on our website. You can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and there's a button for free books and you can download all of these books that we have available because we're going to be studying volumes two all the way through volumes 13 in this program. In our program that we have on Sunday and Wednesday, it's called the group learning program. We study volume one and we go chapter by chapter and that program is going to be restarting on September 1st which is on Wednesday. So if you would like to join the group learning program and participate learning the Buddhist teachings on the path to enlightenment in order to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life, you can surely do that with volume one and the group learning program. If you would like to join us here each week on Saturdays to study exclusively the words of the Buddha, you can do that as well. And these books are completely available to you. The classes are available to you. And even personal guidance is available as well. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our program and to our class today. The way that we start this particular class is we start with a meditation. We will do a short meditation together just to kind of encourage, support, motivate each other on this path through doing meditation together, but more importantly, preparing the mind for studying the Pali Canon, which the Pali Canon in English are the words of the Buddha. And by clearing out any clutter or any kind of erroneous thoughts that are in the mind, focusing it, bringing it to concentration will actually help you to retain the teachings better. 
And by retaining the teachings, then you can apply them in your daily life in order to get the benefit or the results of them. If we just kind of jumped right into class and just started studying, depending on what is going on in the mind, you may not retain as much as if we do kind of a brief little top-up meditation in order to just kind of prepare the mind for study. The practitioners who are actively walking on this path to enlightenment, they'll be meditating two or three times a day as their own independent practice. Typically like morning, midday and evening are good times to be meditating or even just morning and evening. So this meditation is just like a little top up just to kind of prepare the mind for study. So I would like to invite all of you to go ahead and take a meditation position, either seated, standing or lying where we can now join together in meditation. And then afterwards, we'll start studying the words of the Buddha in order to glean his wisdom and then not believing that, but moving it into practice so that we can see the truth for ourselves. So go ahead and make yourself comfortable with your lower body and your hands and arms. I tend to not really give a whole lot of guidance in this particular class because people tend to be a little bit further along in their practice and don't need as much guidance. So just go ahead, make the lower body, hands and arms comfortable. The upper body should be erect. The eyes should be closed and you just breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Just some nice, natural, steady breaths. I'm gonna do some chanting to ease us into meditation and then come back with some more guidance if you know these chants, you're welcome to chant along and then we'll do our meditation.
ഉച്ചരണസമുനു സഖത്തോ ഹനു തെരോസി സത്തവ Okay, you should be able to just breathe in through the nose and out through the nose at your own pace. not necessarily synced up to the guidance that I'm providing. Breathing in. In out. Focus the mind on the breath. The breath is the present moment. Whenever the mind isn't on the breath, cut that off let it go bring the mind back to the breath the present moment breathing in and out i'm going to let you do this work now to do your meditation just breathe in through the nose experiencing the full breath observing the breath with the mind and then the exhale and wherever the mind isn't on the breath cut that off let it go and bring the mind back to the breath breathing in and out
We will transition over to studying the words of the Buddha using his words from the Pali Canon, but in English. This way we can learn exactly what the Buddha taught and how to develop our life practice towards this enlightened mind where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy having eliminated all discontentedness. As we go, the way that we'll do this is there'll be somebody who reads the chapter, and I was asked to read the first chapter, and then I'll teach the chapter after someone's read it. Then we'll open up to any questions that you have regarding the chapter itself. The way that you can ask questions if you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom is put your questions into the comment section and our moderators, Nick and Bassam, will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. 
With this particular program, I always encourage people to come into Zoom because sometimes there needs to be kind of a back and forth. I mean, even with the group learning program, it's great for people to come into Zoom because you can interact more. If the answer that comes to you generates more questions, then in Zoom, it's really easy for you to ask any follow-up questions. So once again, welcome to all of you guys. Let's study this first chapter. And as I mentioned, we're in this book, Walking the Path with the Buddha, Volume 2. So this is in the book series that you can download for free or you can take it to go get it printed or you can order printed copies if you like. This first chapter here, it's titled A Strong Post or Pillar is a Designation for Mindfulness. So right away, mindfulness is awareness of mind. That's kind of generally how we think about mindfulness. But there really are four foundations of mindfulness. Observing the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and any mental objects. And being able to observe these as they're happening actually helps a practitioner eliminate discontentedness. Because if you can observe discontentedness arising as bodily sensations, and you can cut it off there and let it go, then it's really great because you eliminate the whole need for those feelings to come into the mind and pollute the mind. And you just saved yourself you know, a few minutes, a few hours, a few days of potential discontentedness. But if the feelings go past the bodily sensations and they actually make it into feelings in the mind, you can still cut them off there so that they don't affect the longer term condition of the mind for several hours or weeks or what have you. And then if you don't cut it off as a condition of the mind, it can form these mental objects like complacency or ill will or things like this. So observing the mind and developing these four foundations of mindfulness is utterly important for enlightenment that when you feel the bodily sensations of pleasant feelings starting to arise, then you cut that off and let it go. Or when you feel the bodily sensations of painful feelings, you cut that off and let it go. Or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And by cutting it off at the bodily sensations, you get to what the Buddha called is obliterating it at the stump, where the mind is kind of like this wild bush. And there's the mental objects on the outside. A little bit further in is the condition of the mind. A little bit further in are the feelings. A little bit further in is the bodily sensations. And what you would like to do is trim this bush back where you're catching any arising discontentedness as bodily sensations. And when you cut it off there and let it go, over time, eventually you get to the point where you've eliminated all the craving, desire, attachments in the mind, and you won't even feel any arising bodily sensations because there won't be any arising discontentedness that comes into the mind. So here, when the Buddha is talking about a strong pillar or post, what you're going to see is he's talking about breathing mindfulness meditation as being that strong pillar or that strong post that you stabilize the mind and keep the mind focused on the breath so that then as the mind pulls and it longs in different directions, that you're able to pull the mind back and focus on the breath as this strong pillar and strong post. But we'll talk more about this as we read the chapter. So let's read it so you'll understand it and then I'll teach it as we go. 
And how, monks, is there restraint? This is a question that Ali actually asked in a recent class where she asked, you know, what is restraint? And I talked to her, it's about pulling the mind back, like the reins of a horse and, you know, pulling back the reins of a horse. But here the Buddha is going to give you more details on what that means to restrain the mind. Here, having seen a form with the eye, having heard a sound with the ear, having smelt an odor with the nose, having tasted a flavor with the tongue, having touched a physical object with the body, having recognized a mental object with the mind. A monk is not intent upon a pleasing form and not repelled by a displeasing form. So I'm going to pause here for a second. What the Buddha is talking about is the six internal sense bases, which are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. Those are the six internal sense bases. And he's talking about those internal sense bases experiencing an external sense base, which is forms that we see, sounds that we hear, odors that we smell, flavors that we taste, physical objects that we touch or that touch the body, and then certain mental objects that the mind recognizes. The reason why this is important is because these are the doorways to discontentedness. If the mind is going to experience discontentedness, we know it's craving, desire, attachment. But specifically and in more detail, it's actually the mind longing through these six sense bases for forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects or mental objects where the mind wants something. It wants the objects of its affection and it's craving these pleasant feelings to be experienced through these six sense bases. So just like we studied last week about the tortoise pulling in its limbs, in that particular teaching, the Buddha talked about pulling in your sense bases, right? So that if you're longing through these sense bases, there's going to be discontentedness. So here he's bringing that to your attention. But then he's also saying a monk is not intent upon a pleasing form. So in other words, longing for a pleasing form or repelled by a displeasing form. So let me give you an example. Say you see a puppy dog or a kitten. It's so lovely. It's smiling. It's playing. Oh, this is such a pleasant form. And the mind might take this great pleasure this happiness, this excitement in seeing this. But then say you're surfing Facebook and you see a picture of a dog that is completely emaciated with all kinds of decrepit joints and they're starving, malnutrition, their hair is all uh, matted or whatever. This might be a displeasing form to the mind. And in those cases, the mind is experiencing discontentedness because it sees these puppies and kittens. It's like, oh, look, it's puppies, it's kittens. I'm so excited. I'm so thrilled. But then when you see a dog or a cat, for example, in a unfortunate situation, then the mind views this as a displeasing form. And now it becomes discontent with painful feelings. Before it was discontent with pleasant feelings. Now it's discontent with painful feelings. 
And this is just one example with forms that we see, things that we see through the eyes. So if you see your partner or your children do something, or you see a beautiful sports car, oh wow, I want one. Or your car has a scratch on it. Oh, I don't like that, who scratched my car? This is discontentedness that comes in through the eyes because of forms that we see. And then same thing with hearing or sounds. You might hear beautiful music or pleasant sounds or somebody might compliment you and praise you. Oh, if you take such happiness, excitement and thrill when somebody's praising you, well then when you hear displeasing sounds, somebody's talking negative, now the mind's gonna be sad and angry. So this is where the mind's not in the middle and the Buddha's saying be in the middle, be unaffected by something that is pleasing but also be unaffected by that which is displeasing as things enter into these six sense bases. Okay. The next sentence is, he resides having set up mindfulness of the body with a measureless mind. And he understands as it really is that liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, wherein those evil unwholesome states are eliminated without remainder. It is in such a way that there is restraint, okay? So here the Buddha is saying he resides having set up mindfulness of the body. This is those bodily sensations that I was talking about. If you're aware that discontentedness enters in through these six sense bases, then when you experience these pleasant or agreeable forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, or mental objects, right away, you should know, okay, any bodily sensations that arise based on any agreeable, pleasant feelings, cut that off and let it go. And likewise, if there's any displeasing that comes through these six sense bases, the form, the sounds, the odor, the flavor, the physical object or the mental objects, any of those displeasing that comes into the mind and you start observing it, you should notice it and notice those bodily sensations because of mindfulness and cut that off and let it go. All right. And that the Buddha says is restrain, restraining the mind, pulling it back. Don't allow it to long for the pleasant feelings. Don't allow it to be affected by the displeasing feelings. Now he's going to give an analogy of how this comes about, how this works. Suppose, monks, a man were to catch six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds and tie them by a strong rope. He would catch a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey and tie each by a strong rope. Having done so, he would bind them to a strong post or pillar. Then those six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds would each pull in different directions or its own feeding ground and domain. The snake would pull one way, thinking, let me enter an anthill. The crocodile would pull another way, thinking, let me enter the water. The bird would pull another way, thinking, let me fly up into the sky. The dog would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a village. The jackal would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a charnel ground. The monkey would pull another way, thinking, let me enter the forest. So each one of these animals are representing 
the six sense bases, one of the six sense bases. Now, when these six animals become worn out and fatigued, they would stand close to that post or pillar. They would sit down there. They would lie down there. So these six sense bases pulling in all these different directions towards forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. The mind is just pulling and pulling and pulling. And your job is to be aware of that with mindfulness. And when you observe that the mind is pulling in those directions, to cut it off and pull it back. That's that being bound to the post and pillar. Eventually, the mind gets tired of all this pulling and you restraining it. Eventually, the mind submits and it sits down at this post or this pillar and no longer pulls, just like these animals. That's what the Buddha is talking about that these six animals eventually will get worn out and fatigued by continuing to pull with this rope tied to this post or pillar, and eventually they would just lie down at the post or pillar, and that's what happens to your mind. So now he's explaining that. So too, monks. When a monk has developed and cultivated mindfulness directed at the body, the eye does not pull in the direction of agreeable forms, nor are disagreeable forms repulsive. The ear does not pull in the direction of agreeable sounds, nor are disagreeable sounds repulsive. The nose does not pull in the direction of agreeable odors, nor are disagreeable odors repulsive. The tongue does not pull in the direction of agreeable flavors, nor are disagreeable flavors repulsive. The body does not pull in the direction of agreeable physical objects, nor are disagreeable physical objects repulsive. The mind does not pull in the direction of agreeable mental objects, nor are disagreeable mental objects repulsive. In such a way that there is restraint, because the mind has been restrained, it's been so well trained that it no longer longs and craves through these six sense bases. A strong post or pillar this, monks, is a designation for mindfulness directed at the body. So that's your post, the breathing mindfulness meditation, developing the awareness of bodily sensations. And when you observe those bodily sensations, cut them off and let them go so that then the mind is restrained and it submits and it sits down and it's no longer affected by agreeable or disagreeable forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate mindfulness directed to the body. Make it our vehicle. Make it our basis. Stabilize it. Exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it. Thus, you should train yourselves. So just like everything else on the path to enlightenment, you'll need to learn it and ask questions in class. You'll need to reflect on it and you'll need to practice it. And just like everything else on the Buddhist teachings, you won't be an expert at this just because you've learned it in class. But this is a part of your practice that you can build up in order to ultimately eliminate discontentedness. So let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter, if any. No questions on Zoom, teacher. We can go to chapter 32. Okay. And over to Holly. Sounds good. Dwelling and breathing mindfulness meditation. 
monks, that monk gains a will without trouble or difficulty, the concentration through the development and cultivation of which no shaking or trembling occurs in the body, and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. And what concentration is it through the development and cultivation of which no shaking or trembling occurs in the body, and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind? It is monks, when concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, has been developed and cultivated that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body, and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. And how, monks, is concentration of mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body, and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind? Here, monks, a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful, he breathes in, mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows, I breathe out short. Or breathing in short, he knows, I breathe out short. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experience the whole body, I will breathe out. He trains thus, calming the bodily sensations, I will breathe in. He trains thus, calming the bodily sensations, I will breathe out. He trains thus, experiencing joy, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing joy, I will breathe out. He trains thus, experiencing peacefulness, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing peacefulness, I will breathe out. He trains thus, experiencing the mental activity, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing the mental activity, I will breathe out. He trains thus, calming the mental activity, I will breathe in. He trains thus, calming the mental activity, I will breathe out. He trains thus, experiencing the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, gladdening the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, gladdening the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, concentrating the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, concentrating the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, liberating the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, liberating the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, reflecting on impermanence, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on impermanence, I will breathe out. He trains thus, reflecting on fading away, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on fading away, I will breathe out. He trains thus, reflecting on elimination, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on elimination, I will breathe out. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. It is months when concentration by mindfulness of breathing has been developed and cultivated in this way that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. I too, monks, before my enlightenment, not yet fully enlightened, generally dwelt in this dwelling. While I generally dwelt in this dwelling, neither my body nor my eyes became fatigued 
and my mind, by not clinging, was liberated from the taints. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, may neither my body nor my eyes become fatigued, and may my mind, by not clinging, be liberated from the taints. The same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to. Okay. So thank you, Holly. Let's go through this. So here, the Buddha is giving instruction about meditation, and he does this in many of his different discourses, and there's a couple of them here today. We won't read that whole thing for each individual chapter, but you'll see that he gives this similar guidance throughout. So here, what he's talking about is that we need to develop breathing mindfulness meditation in order to eliminate the trembling of the mind and the trembling in the body. This develops concentration in the mind is essentially what he's talking about in that first paragraph. Then he kind of reiterates that here in the second paragraph. And then he starts giving directions on how to actually do meditation. In his lifetime, he encouraged people to go to the forest, to the foot of a tree, to an empty hut and sit down where the ordained practitioners didn't necessarily have a lot of monasteries during his lifetime because they were just getting started. They oftentimes just resided in isolated dwellings in the forest or sometimes household practitioners would invite ordained practitioners to come stay with them for a little while. And the Buddha is, you know, encouraging them to find kind of an isolated spot in order to sit down and do meditation. And then here you can see he talks about, you know, folding the legs and straightening the body, right? That's where I always talk about, you know, having the upper body erect because that's what keeps the mind attentive and alert during meditation. And then setting up mindfulness in front of him. This is about bringing awareness of the mind by focusing on the breath. And I use chanting in order to kind of ease the mind in the meditation and start setting up that mindfulness and then start focusing on breathing in and out, in and out, in and out. The Buddha here isn't necessarily saying that one should breathe long or they should breathe short. He's just essentially saying, bring your mind to the breath. These instructions that you're seeing here is essentially the way that I guide people in meditation when I say, you know, focus on the breath. If the mind goes off the breath, cut that off, let it go, bring the mind back to the breath. This is him giving some kind of guidance as he's leading people into meditation and helping them understand how to actually meditate. It's not that you should remember each one of these phrases and actually do this as part of your meditation, but it's just kind of the Buddha's guidance, his guided meditation is helping people to observe their breath and focus on the breath. Then after he gets them focused on the breath, he starts referring to them to the body and start focusing on the whole body and those bodily sensations to develop the awareness of those bodily sensations. And then as the mind experiences joy, because sometimes during meditation, the mind can experience joy. He's not encouraging you to follow that joy or revel in that joy. But instead, when that joy arises, continue to focus on the breath be unaffected by the joy and just keep focusing on the breath. Same thing when you experience peacefulness in meditation, rather than be like, oh, wow, that's so peaceful and start kind of following that or reveling in that 
or even maybe gaining some arrogance or pride that the mind is so peaceful during meditation, experiencing peacefulness, just continue to focus on the breath in and out, in and out. If there's any mental activity, that's where I talk about where the mind is off the breath. That's mental activity. That's the mind craving desire attached, either going to the past or the future or having thoughts, ideas, so forth. Just continue to focus on the breath while calming the mind, right? Calming the mental activity, quieting it, stilling it, right? Even when the mind's enlightened, you're still going to have some mental activity. As long as you're alive, the mind's going to have mental activity. But in meditation, what you're doing is you're training the mind to get good at observing what the mental activity is. And then when the mind's off the breath, cut it off and let it go easier and easier, bringing the mind back to the breath. That allows the mind to be trained to let go of craving, desire, attachment easier and easier so that when you feel discontentedness arising and you notice those bodily sensations easier and easier, you can calm the mental activity, cut off those bodily sensations and let them go. That's what you're training for in meditation so that then you can do it outside of meditation. Same thing, experience any mental conditioning that is arising or any kind of aspects of the mind, just keep focusing on the breath. And then gladdening the mind, focusing the mind and having joy, right? But just still focusing on the breath, concentrating the mind, liberating the mind. This is starting to move into how to train the mind to let go of discontentedness. He talks about reflecting on impermanence while you're in meditation. If you notice bodily sensations arise rather than itch them or scratch them, or if there's a thought that comes up, notice that it, they're impermanent. Soak deeply into the mind that all of this stuff that arises, it changes and then it fades away or cease to exist. Soak into the mind all this impermanence because then the mind will have less of a likelihood to hold on to things craving permanence when the mind deeply understands that all of these things are impermanent. And then same thing, reflecting on fading away because these things that arise are going to fade away, reflecting on elimination, reflecting on letting go. So in this particular chapter, in the explanation, I didn't talk about each one of these in a lot of detail because volume seven is all about breathing mindfulness meditation. And the very first chapter in volume seven I go through a detail line by line by line exactly what each one of these are. So you'll see that in volume seven. But for now, in the explanations, you just saw a very general explanation of this and really kind of referring you to volume seven. So training and breathing mindfulness meditation, the mind becomes concentrated. We develop and cultivate breathing mindfulness meditation in this way. The mind no longer is shaken the mind becomes unshakable. It no longer trembles, and therefore the body doesn't tremble either. If you've ever been in a situation where something significant has happened and the mind is shaken up, then you know that the body shakes too whenever the mind is shaken up. But what the Buddha is sharing is when you cultivate breathing mindfulness meditation and develop concentration, there won't be any shaking or trembling of the mind or the body. And then he says, you know, even before his enlightenment, this is what he practiced. 
And this is essentially what led to his enlightenment. And during that time, while he resided and dwelled, constantly practicing and developing breathing mindfulness meditation, neither his body nor his eyes became fatigued or his mind, right? So an enlightened mind, as you're training more and more, you won't experience fatigue of the mind. There'll be tiredness where you'll need to, to sleep, but you won't experience fatigue, that heaviness in the mind, that pressure in the mind, or that heaviness of the body, that heaviness on your shoulders, or that heaviness in your feet and legs. You won't experience that when the mind is enlightened because you've eliminated the burden of carrying around craving, desire, attachment. So here, the Buddha being very polite and kind, friendly and respectful, he doesn't order people to do what he says. He says, therefore, monks, if a monk should aspire, right? If you're interested in experiencing this liberation of mind, may neither my body nor my eyes become fatigued or may my mind become fatigued by non-clinging, be liberated from the taints. Those are the 10 fetters. Whenever you see the taints, those are those 10 fetters or 10 pollutions. This same concentration by mindfulness of breathing should be closely attended to, right? He's not ordering somebody, you know, thou shalt practice meditation or else something horrible is going to happen to you. No, he's just inviting people. Hey, if you aspire to experience the same thing that I've experienced, here's how I did it. It's through breathing mindfulness meditation. Here's how you do breathing mindfulness meditation, and you should do this regularly. You should closely attend to it. So this is how a Buddha teaches. They don't try to guilt, shame, or fear people into practicing their teachings, but they just invite them to learn, invite them to reflect, and invite them to practice because a Buddha's mind is already peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. They're not going to try to force somebody into learning and practicing their teachings through guilt, shame, or fear. We're just going to invite people whoever would like to learn. Okay, you're welcome to learn. You're not interested in learning? Okay, that's fine too, right? So you can see that here in this paragraph. He just so politely, kindly, respectfully invites people to practice breathing mindfulness meditation if they'd like. Questions on this chapter? Looks like Holly has a hand up. I just wanted to see if um, this list of things, would it be helpful to use this as something to occupy the mind if we're very distracted or would that just be another distraction? Like for example, if I'm in meditation and I remember this these things and I'm thinking to myself, sort of like the affirmations we do during loving kindness where we think about the words of may I be peaceful, may I be calm, could we use these expressions to affirm and get our minds concentrated more on the breathing if we said in our minds something like I'm experiencing the body and I'm releasing and calming and that sort of like this list. Would that be something that we could do or would that just be another distraction? You surely can. This is something that I did, not all of these, but early on when I was meditating and I noticed the mind was having trouble and I couldn't pull it back, I would just say, breathe in, breathe out. And I would do it quietly in my mind, right? The same way that I do it externally for you guys, I would do that in the mind. So yeah, you can use these affirmations, but just don't rely on them 
where you try to make it permanent. So if you need to use it, use it to kind of pull the mind back, but then stop using it for three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, and see if you can train the mind to reside on the breath without these. But if you need it, feel free to use it and see how it works for you. It, it did help me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. All right, should we move on to the next chapter? Okay, Teacher David. Thank you, sir. And it's on to Allie for chapter 33. Okay. Allie, when you read this one, you don't need to read the same long description that Holly read. You can just skip over that since we've got it once already. Um, okay. Okay. Reading mindfulness meditation, the Takaga dwelling monk. If one of the other community asks you, in what dwelling, friends, did the perfectly enlightened one generally dwell during the rain retreat? If asked us, you should answer those wandering us. During the rain resident, friend, the perfect enlightened one generally resided in the concentration by mindfulness of breathing reading mindfulness meditation. If anyone among speaking rightly could say of anything, it is noble dwelling and excellent dwelling. The Tagada dwellings, it is of concentration by mindfulness of reading. Reading mindfulness meditation, that one could rightfully say this. Those monks who are trainee, who have not trained their minds ideal, who dwell aspiring for the unsurpassed security from bondage, enlightenment, for them the concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation when developed and cultivated lead to the destruction of the pain. Those monks who are arahats, whose pain are destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, lay down the burden, reach their own goal, completely destroy the fetter of existence, those completely liberate through final knowledge, wisdom, for the concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, lead to peaceful dwelling in this very life and to mindfulness and clear comprehension. If anyone monks speaking rightly could say of anything, it is a noble dwelling, an excellent dwelling. The Tagara dwellings is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, that one could rightly say this. Great, thank you, Ali. So here, the Buddha, once again, is just pointing to how important breathing mindfulness meditation is, that during this rain retreat, about three months per year, where the Buddha would require his ordained practitioners to stay in one spot, and he wouldn't let them travel. All throughout the rest of the year, they would travel around and roam around, learning from different people, sharing the teachings with different people. But when it's raining so much, If the monks were to walk, the earth is so soft that they could damage the crops of the farmers. So he wasn't interested in them harming the livelihood of the farmers and thus reduce the 
food supply for the local villagers so he would have them stay during the rains retreats in just one spot for that three-month period it's usually kind of like mid july to like mid-october it's based on the lunar schedule okay so during this rain retreat the buddha is basically saying okay if anybody would like to know where i resided if they would like to know where i was well i was in breathing mindfulness meditation that's where i was at right and that's the place where he dwelled that's the dwelling or that's the residence that he took up during that frame of time and then he explains how breathing mindfulness meditation is an excellent dwelling it's a peaceful dwelling it creates this concentration and it leads to the destruction of the ten fetters of the taints so any questions on this one no questions teacher and uh back to holly for chapter 34. okay when he develops breathing mindfulness of death attentively for the destruction of the taints monks mindfulness of death when developed and cultivated is of great fruit and benefit culminating in the deathless enlightenment having the deathless as its conclusion but do you monks develop mindfulness of death when this was said one monk said to the perfectly enlightened one venerable sir i develop mindfulness of death monks the monk who develops breathing mindfulness of death thus May I live just a night and a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teachings. I could then accomplish much. May I live just a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teachings. I could then accomplish much. May I live just half a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teachings. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of the time it takes to eat a single alms food meal so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teachings. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to eat half an alms food meal so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teachings. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow four or five mouthfuls of food so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teachings. I could then accomplish much. These are called monks who dwell carelessly. They develop mindfulness of death sluggishly for the destruction of the taints. But the monk who develops mindfulness of death thus, may I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow a single mouthful of food so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teachings. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to breathe out after breathing in or to breathe in after breathing out so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teachings. I could then accomplish much. These are called monks who reside determined. They develop mindfulness of death attentively for the destruction of the taints. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus. We will reside determined. We will develop mindfulness of death attentively for the destruction of the taints. Thus, should you train yourselves. Okay, thank you, Holly. So here he's talking about developing mindfulness of death. In order to attain enlightenment, a practitioner has to get to the point where the mind no longer craves existence and is no longer having any fear of death. And this is part of progressing through enlightenment. And you might not be there yet. You may not even envision that you could ever be there, but you can. As you develop along this path, you can get to the point where you no longer have any fear of death, that you just recognize it as part of impermanence and just part of what's going to happen rather than fearing it. 
So here the Buddha talks about developing and cultivating mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation is of great fruit and benefit culminating in the deathless. He referred to enlightenment sometimes as the deathless or the element of deathless. The reason why is because essentially what you're doing to attain enlightenment is you're eradicating all this poison in the mind. You're eradicating all these taints, all this pollution. You're essentially killing the mind without actually killing the being. And you get to this natural purity of the enlightened mind. And once you do, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And when the physical body dies, it isn't really death because it's just the physical body dying, right? That a being will no longer experience death because it's no longer going to be reborn once it's enlightened. So the Buddha calls this the deathless or the element of deathless, or he would refer to this people who have attained enlightenment as the deathless, that they'll no longer experience any death because the mind is enlightened. And when there's actual death in this life that one is enlightened, it's just the physical body dying, right? It's just the physical body being impermanent and dying. But from that point forward, there's no longer going to be any more rebirth. So this person's never going to die again. So that's why he called it the deathless. Here, this first paragraph, he's talking about people who are essentially complacent, right? Students who are complacent, who are looking to have all this time and like, yeah, 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 we'll get to the Buddhist teachings. We'll get to the Buddhist teachings. Yeah, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Let me just live longer and longer and longer periods of time. And then eventually I'll get to practicing the teachings. And he says, yeah, this is a careless, sluggish way that, you know, it's not going to lead to destroying the fetters or the taints, those pollutions of mind, it's going to happen very sluggishly or very slowly. But somebody who's more attentive and more determined is going to be able to be more actively engaged with developing their practice. And that's going to lead to elimination of the destruction of the taints more readily. That's what he's describing here. So he's saying, you know, train yourselves thus that you'll reside determined so determined, dedicated, diligent. By doing that, by eradicating complacency, then you can move this mind in a more active direction towards enlightenment. Questions on this one? I'm not seeing any questions, um, but, but real quick, essentially this is saying um, study and, and do the work now instead of taking any time. Because I, when, I, when I was first reading, I was trying to understand, okay, four or five mouth. I mean, that's pretty quick, pretty quick. <laughs> but now I, I, after you explained it, I, I think, I think it just means, hey, do it now. Don't, don't wait for any time later. Oh, I'll get to it. Exactly. And right? the, the Buddha speaks in exaggerated terms sometimes in order to make a point, right? Rather than just say, you know what, monks, don't be complacent, which he says in other places in his teachings. In this particular teaching, depending on who was in the audience and who he was talking to, he's going to customize his teachings based on the people that are sitting in front of him. So while the general theme here is like you say, Nick, you know, do it now. Don't be complacent. He's going to say it in a much better way that applies directly to the people that are in front of him because there are other places where he just comes right out and says it like don't be complacent um, but in this particular instance he gave a little bit more of a story 
to help people remember it. Because remember, in an oral tradition, nothing's being written down. The way that you actually remember and retain teachings in an oral tradition is to tell a story. You'll remember a story that somebody tells you. You'll remember the story, the details of the story, and the moral of the story. But if somebody just gave you information, you tend to not remember that. So in an oral tradition, there tends to be lots of stories in order to help people remember things. That makes sense. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Chapter 35. Direct knowledge for a sick one. Monks, if five things do not slip away from a weak and sick monk, it can be predicted of him. In no long time, with the destruction of taints, he will realize for himself with direct knowledge, experience, in this very life, the taintless liberation of the mind, liberation by wisdom, being entered upon it, you will reside in it. What five? Here, a monk resides reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving the dissatisfaction of food, perceiving non-excitement in the entire world, reflecting on impermanence in all conditioned objects, and he has the perception of death well-established internally. If these five things do not slip away from a weak and sick monk, it can be predicted of him. In no long time, with the destruction of taints, he will realize for himself with direct knowledge, experience, and this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he will reside in. Okay, thank you, Nick. So here, the Buddha is giving five things to cultivate and train the mind towards. And all of his teachings are giving us all kinds of things that we need to train and actively work towards. This is just five things beyond what he shares as part of his core teachings. These are starting to really get in and narrow in on specific fetters and how we eliminate certain fetters. So here are these five things that he's suggesting and that he's guiding people to understand is some of these are to eliminate central desire. Some of them are to eliminate the upper fetters of desire for form, desire for formless. Others are to eradicate ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So each one of these are for specific fetters. So unattractiveness of the body, this is the reason why we have central desire and we crave sexual contact is that we see the body as attractive. We see this outer layer of skin, we see hair, we see jewelry, we see muscles, we see makeup, we smell perfumes or colognes, we see clothing, and we're attracted to this physical body and we're interested in sexual contact, for example, because we're not seeing true reality. We just see all this made up stuff we see the outer skin. And if somebody actually had their skin peeled off and said, okay, now you can have sex with this person, you'd probably be like, uh, that's okay, I'm fine, right? Because then at that point you see true reality, what this body is really made of. So what the Buddha teaches when or if you're ready to eliminate sensual desire and specifically sexual contact, then you develop this unattractiveness of the body. And there's ways to do that where you look at pictures or corpses and do things to train the mind to see true reality as it relates to 
the unattractiveness of the body. We sometimes think about things like the fluids in the body, like pus and saliva and blood and urine and feces and mucus and things like this. This helps you to see that this human body really isn't very attractive. It's doing all this dirty stuff. And, you know, why is it that we want to engage in sexual contact? Well, it's because we're not seeing true reality. But the more that you develop this unattractiveness of the body, then you will be able to eliminate that craving for sexual contact, which directly connects to the fetter of sensual desire. And then same thing, perceiving the dissatisfaction of food is, you know, rather than kind of gorge on food or look for food as something pleasurable, we train the mind to look at food not for amusement or not for beautification of the body or not to please the mind or please the tongue, but instead we look at it as a way to sustain the physical body and take away any kind of hunger or any kind of pain that we experience through hunger. We use food just to sustain the continuation of this body rather than for amusement. And it doesn't mean you can't enjoy food when you're enlightened because you'll enjoy food. It's just that you don't allow the mind to crave it and long for it. Because if you crave that piece of chocolate pie or chocolate cake and you've got your mind set on it and you're on your way home and you get home and somebody ate your chocolate cake, now you're going to be angry when the chocolate cake's not there. So you train the mind to let go of this craving and holding on and grasping for food and instead train the mind to recognize that this food is just for the continuation of this body. Perceiving non-excitement in the entire world. This is what we talked about recently in the group learning program about how there's really nothing in this world that is worth kind of grabbing onto. That there's all this stuff, there's all these impermanent objects but none of it is permanent. None of it's going to create lasting satisfaction in the mind. But as long as the mind is craving and longing for excitement in the world, then it's going to experience painful feelings because it's craving those pleasant feelings. Once again, an enlightened mind and somebody on this path, you can truly enjoy things in this world. You can enjoy holidays. You can enjoy scenery. You can enjoy food like we talked about. You can enjoy relationships and conversations. You actually enjoy these things a lot more as you move closer and closer to enlightenment. But what you would like to do is get to the point where the mind is not craving excitement and craving for things in the world to be a certain way. That's going to cause discontentedness. Reflecting on impermanence and all conditioned objects, you guys already understand what that means, which is thinking inwardly, observing all these conditioned objects are impermanent because then it trains the mind not to latch on and crave permanence for all these conditioned objects. And to develop the perception of death that understand that this human body is going to die, this existence is not permanent, and the people around you are not permanent either. The more that you develop this, and we talk about different ways to do that, then you won't experience misery and despair and grief when people around you die or when you're nearing your own death. It's only when you're trying to hold on to the people around you and keep them permanently that the mind's going to experience grief and sorrow and despair. 
Same thing when you're nearing death, if you're trying to hold on to this world and all the things in the world, then you're going to meet with misery and despair when you're nearing death because you're still holding on to the world and you haven't developed this perception of death in the mind. So this will help you on your path to enlightenment to get rid of the various fetters. Questions on this chapter? So these five things, they cover all the 10 fetters? They don't cover all the 10 fetters. So unattractiveness of the body and the perception of dissatisfaction in food, that helps you with eliminating central desire. But there's other things too that you'll need to do. Perceiving non-excitement in the entire world and perception of death well-established internally, this helps you to eliminate the desire for form and desire for formless. Those are the sixth and seventh fetters. And this reflection on impermanence and all conditioned objects helps you to eliminate that tenth fetter, which is ignorance or unknowing of true reality. But there's a lot of other things you need to do in order to eradicate those fetters and all the others as well. I ask because the last sentence um, mentions liberation. So uh, for clarification, you have to eliminate all the 10 fetters for liberation. I was wondering why he's only mentioning the five to work on this at death. I was thinking you would attain enlightenment at death if you worked on these. Yeah, the way that some people tend to read the Buddhist teachings, and I don't suggest you read them this way, is that when you read something like this, you look at it as kind of like all-inclusive. And you think like, okay, well, he's talking about taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and then he's giving us five things. That must be the only five things. But he doesn't teach that way. His teachings are layered. So there's multiple aspects of his teachings that you have to learn in order to get to liberation of mind. There's never a time where he could encapsulate in just one teaching all right, this is everything you need to do to attain enlightenment. That's why he taught for 45 years because there's so many different pieces to it. And that's why you need guidance from a teacher so they can walk you through. So even though he's talking about liberation of mind and he's talking about enlightenment here, this isn't the only five things that you need. Thank you, teacher. Holly has her hand raised. Okay, I have a question about the the description you gave of the activities for reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body. It sounds to me like it's almost like you would be creating an aversion to the body in order to not have desires. What, what it, how is this different from an aversion, which is also something we're supposed to not do? <laughs> Okay, so understanding what aversion is. Aversion is when the mind experiences some type of painful feelings, for example, and then the mind falsely attributes those painful feelings to a person or to a situation, and then you erect a wall pushing that person or situation out of your life because you experience painful feelings. You're falsely attributing it to that person, and you think they're the ones who caused it, so you're going to push them out. That's aversion. That's different than what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is we're talking about being able to see true reality, that the body is not attractive if we look at it and see true reality, that if we peel back the skin, the body truly isn't attractive. And that's why I started with 
you know, if somebody had that situation and peeled the skin back, people wouldn't be interested in having sexual contact with that being with skin pulled back. Well, there may be a few people here and there that are fine with that, but, you know, for the massive amount of people that, you know, we just wouldn't typically be interested in that. So that's not an aversion. Aversion would be, again, you know, falsely attributing painful feelings to a person or situation, pushing them away and erecting a wall between you and them, where this is being able to just see true reality of seeing that this is truly just a skeleton, a bunch of bones with muscles, tendons, sinews, fluid, skin, all these different components which are being dressed up to be able to look appealing so that we will have sexual craving. But that's because we're, we're not seeing true reality. This body is being dressed up and not just with visual things, but oftentimes with sense as well in order to create the attraction. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Let's go to Miranda next. She has her hand raised. Hi, David. Um, in your explanation, um, you said something about having someone else choose a person's food for six months or so. Mm -hmm. What if the person who is going to be choosing your food would choose non-vegetarian items for you? Or is that kind of like a stipulation you can give them, hey, I want you to choose the food that I'm going to eat, but it needs to be vegetarian or vegan? Yeah, that's where discernment comes in, right? Is that you make sure that you're choosing wisely, that somebody who's interested in your progress on the path. And if you would like to use that method where you have somebody else choose your food, say, hey, you know, I would like to see if you could choose a meal for me here and there or some food for me and that you choose vegan food. And it doesn't have to be the same person, too. So one of the things that I used to do is I used to go into a restaurant and I would sit down and I would say, oh, you work here. What vegetarian dish do you think is uh, one that you would order if you were ordering? And then they say, I would order such and such. Okay, give me that. Right. So I walked in without any expectations of what I'm going to eat and just let the food server pick the food. Or in other cases, if we're eating at home, my wife would be picking the food and she would be just putting food down in front of me because the ordained practitioners, they don't get to pick their food. They just walk down the street and accept whatever is given. And that's part of their discipline. But for us household practitioners, we have that flexibility to choose our food. So if you kind of give that up for certain situations, it doesn't have to be all the time. It doesn't have to be like a solid six months or a solid 12 months. But where you're in a situation where someone else can pick your food, if you just let them do it and you're able to do that and you trust that they're going to pick you food that is vegetarian, then you can do that. And if you're at a restaurant, for example, and you let's just say it was your life partner who maybe loves to eat meat and they you heard them order you meat. You're like, no, 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 I'm not going to order that. Uh, excuse me, waiter. <laughs> you know, you can change it because it's all about discernment. It's not about being tricky. It's about making sure that you have wise decisions and that you kind of relinquish this choice that the mind wants to make because the mind wants certain foods and it's going to crave certain foods. And if you just accept whatever is in front of you and look at it as sustaining the physical body, that can help train the mind to no longer crave through the tongue. Okay. That seems like that would be an interesting thing to do 
to when there was opportunity and a trustworthy person to let them kind of pick for you. All right, thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Holly has her hand raised. Okay. I'm following up a question on something that was just said with Miranda. Two, two things. If someone else is providing food for you and they know that you are vegan, um, but they put things in the food that you don't know about that are not vegan, and you eat it not knowing, is that something that should be addressed? Like, it, the honest example is my husband puts butter on all the vegetables. <laughs> and sometimes he doesn't tell me that there's butter on it. And if I know there's butter, I won't eat them. I'll fix my own. But is that something that is, like, I should say something about it? Because I normally do. I would. I would find a polite, kind, friendly, respectful way to let your husband know, like, hey, if you're going to put butter on the vegetables, maybe you could put a little bit to the side for me because I don't eat butter. And then just be sure that he's on board with your decision that he's willing to do that because you've made the decision not to eat butter. You have to find a polite way to talk with each other and show him, like, you know, this is a partnership and we're doing things together in order to help each other here. And I, I prefer to eat food without butter. Right. And the other question I had, you mentioned how the monks go around and they eat whatever they're given. Do the people in Thailand give them vegan food or do the people sometimes give them meat and they eat it anyway? Or do they choose not to eat it if it's given to them? They eat whatever is given to them. And there's not widely understood within the Theravada tradition that people should be eating vegan food. So here in Thailand, they're very heavy into meats and the household practitioners do offer meats to the ordained practitioners and they will eat it. The ordained practitioners aren't necessarily practicing at any particular depth of teachings. I've met ordained practitioners that are enlightened and completely enlightened and understand you know, these teachings in the way that you and I are, are discussing them. And then I've seen ordained practitioners who are actually drinking alcohol and smoking cigarettes, right? So there's this wide a range of practitioners and there's different levels of depth depending on what community you're in. Some temples make it really well known that they prefer the household practitioners to only offer vegetarian food and the household practitioners know that very well and they will only offer vegetarian food. But depending on who the leader is at the temple, everyone's kind of looking to that leader, that master teacher to kind of guide the community of ordained practitioners and household practitioners. And depending on how deeply versed the master teacher is, he may or may not have, or she may or may not have set it up where, you know, people know to eat vegan, depending on how deep that person's practice is. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, let's go on to Basson for chapter 36. Okay. Thanks, Nick. There is no you there. Then, Bahia, when for you, there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the recognized in reference to the recognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor beyond, nor between the two, 
This, just this, is industrious. Okay, thank you, Basam. So here the Buddha is pointing to the universal truth of non-self, and he's explaining that when you see something, it's just a form that the mind is seeing. There's no you there. It's just that the eyes are seeing a certain form. Or if you hear something, hear some sound, there's no you there. It's just a sound. Or if you sense something right through the nose or the body or whatever, then it's just a, some odor that you're sensing. Or if you recognize something in terms of the mind, there's no you there in connection with that. It's just the mind experiencing these things through these six sense spaces. There is no you that is experiencing these things. It's just the mind that's experiencing that. And then the Buddha says, when there's no you in connection with that, so when you kind of get rid of this you, when you get rid of this self, and there is no you there, then he's saying, you know, you're not going to have this coming and going where you want to always be on the go and moving around from place to place to place to place. And he says, just this is the end of stress. That's another way of saying discontentedness. So through eliminating the self, through practicing the universal truth of non-self, he's saying this is the way to eliminate stress. So here, once again, just like in the previous teaching, he's not giving kind of like one thing like, oh, OK, you want to eliminate stress? Just get rid of the self. Right. So you can't look at the Buddhist teachings in isolation. You have to look at his teachings in totality to really, truly get rid of stress. You have to understand the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. You need to practice all of that. You need to practice the breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, the four Brahma Viharas. You have to start getting rid of the 10 fetters. All of these other things are part of this path. So it's important that when you see a teaching like this, that you don't look at it in isolation and think that he's just giving you, you know, two paragraphs of how to eliminate stress. In reality, this is just one particular teaching that's part of a more comprehensive teachings that he laid down over the course of 45 years. Any questions on this chapter? All right. We'll go to Moran, chapter 37. All right. Perfect. With the elimination of excitement comes the complete destruction of discontentedness. Puna, there are forms recognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If a monk does not seek excitement in them, does not welcome them, and does not remain holding to them, excitement is eliminated in him. With the elimination of excitement, Puna, there is the elimination of discontentedness, I say. There are, Puna, sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, physical objects recognizable by the body, mental objects recognizable by the mind, that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If a monk does not seek excitement in them, does not welcome them, and does not remain holding to them, excitement is eliminated in him. With the elimination of excitement, Puna, there is the elimination of discontentedness, I say. Thank you, Miranda. This is the Buddha talking about eliminating the longing for pleasant feelings through these six sense bases. That if you can eliminate that, 
then you can eliminate all discontentedness. Because as long as the mind is longing for these pleasant feelings, i.e. excitement, that's what he's talking about here, then as long as the mind is longing for that, as long as the mind is welcoming it, right, remaining holding on to it, then the mind's going to also experience painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, and all this other stuff, because the mind can't permanently experience pleasant feelings based on impermanent conditions. So if we welcome these agreeable, lovely, desirable, pleasing, centrally enticing and tempting things in through these six sense spaces, as long as we're welcoming that stuff in and inviting it in, then we're also inviting in the painful feelings. So it's not until the mind gets to a point that it's willing to let go of these temporary pleasant feelings that it can then come into its own where it then experiences permanent joy. As long as the mind's longing for these impermanent pleasant feelings, then it's also going to experience these painful feelings. So when we cut those off, let go of that longing for excitement or thrill or euphoria, any kind of pleasant feelings, then the mind is basically residing peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not attached to any impermanent conditions to create that peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy. It's just always there. But as long as the mind wants this over here, and it wants this, and it wants that, and it wants this, and wants that, and wants this, it's never going to be content because it keeps longing through these six sense bases, like those six animals pulling and tugging, going in different directions. So when we restrain that, and we pull it back, and we reside at the pillar of the post, then the mind can be content. Oh, I'm going to eat lasagna today. I really enjoy lasagna. Let's have some lasagna. Okay, enjoy lasagna. Okay, you can enjoy it, but just don't hold on to it, craving it to be there the next time and the next time and the next time. Okay, oh, I can't think of any foods I don't like. Let's just say I don't like cauliflower, okay? If I didn't like cauliflower, let's just say, okay, this time cauliflower, then okay, this cauliflower maybe is disagreeable to you. You sit down, it's cauliflower. Hmm, I prefer not to eat cauliflower, but you know what? I'm just trying to sustain the health of this body. Let me eat cauliflower and let me just eat it because I'm just sustaining the health of this body. Whereas if the mind doesn't like cauliflower, and it's longing for lasagna, you're going to be discontent the whole time you're eating cauliflower. So to avoid that and eliminate that, you just look at food, for example, as sustaining the health of the body. And I just need to put this substance into the body in order to sustain the health of the body. The goal isn't to please the tongue, thus please the mind. The goal is to nourish the body and keep it healthy. And in that situation, then you can eat any food pretty much, except here in Thailand, I can't eat that super spicy stuff. <laughs> There's certain things that I just can't eat because it just would put my mouth on fire and may even have to go to the hospital. But you can get to the point where you're content and peaceful no matter what food is in front of you, for example. And you need to train the mind to do that with every single sense base. That if the mind sees something through the eyes, agreeable, okay, that's fine. You see something that's disagreeable that you would prefer not to see, 
maybe an adult hitting a child. Maybe you don't like to see that. But you have to not allow the mind to get shaken up by it. Because then when the mind becomes uncalm, it starts acting irrational. And then there are certain intentions, speech, and actions that result from that. And then we start making decisions that cause harm. And then thus that harm comes to us. So not saying that you have to ignore that situation, not saying that you have to do something about that situation, but you have to remain calm where the mind isn't shaken up by something that you would prefer not to see, for example. Questions on this chapter? No questions, teacher. We can move on. Okay. Chapter 38. Liberation of the destruction of craving. On seeing a form with the eye, he does not crave after it, if it is pleasing. He is not averse to it, if it is unpleasing. He resides with mindfulness of the body established with an immeasurable mind, and he understands as it actually is, the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom, wherein those evil unwholesome states are eliminated without remainder. Having thus abandoned favoring and opposing, Whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, he does not seek excitement in that feeling, welcome it, or remain holding on to it. As he does not do so, excitement in feelings is eliminated in him. With the elimination of his excitement comes elimination of clinging. With the elimination of clinging, elimination of existence. With the elimination of existence, elimination of birth, with the elimination of birth, aging and death, sorrow, pain, grief, displeasure, and despair is eliminated. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentedness. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a physical object with the body, on recognizing a mental object with the mind, he does not crave after it if it is pleasing. He does not become adverse to it if it is unpleasing. With the elimination of his excitement comes elimination of clinging. With the elimination of clinging, elimination of existence. With elimination of existence, elimination of birth. With the elimination of birth, aging and death. Sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair is eliminated. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentedness. Monks, Remember this discourse of mind briefly as liberation of the destruction of craving. Okay, so here the Buddha is putting together a whole bunch of teachings into one place. Okay, so far we've been talking about related to the six sense spaces is observing the pleasant feelings, for example, the discontentedness arising as bodily sensations based on agreeable or pleasing forms, for example, that we see, and cutting that off and letting that go. And then likewise, if we see displeasing or disagreeable forms, then we observe that and we cut that off and let it go. That's what he's essentially talking about here in this first one, that we train the mind to not crave after this pleasing and that we don't push away the unpleasing, okay? By having this mindfulness of the body well established where you're observing the bodily sensations and cutting that off and letting it go. This is how you work towards the elimination of those evil and wholesome states 
where there is no more remainder. There's no more craving, desire, attachment that's going to create that longing. But then he goes a step further. This is where the mind actually gets to enlightenment as you develop what I just talked about as a first step and what we've been talking about in the whole class, what you eventually get to is that you actually abandon this favor and opposing. All of a sudden, there's nothing that is, not all of a sudden, but you train in this direction that there's no such thing as an agreeable form or a disagreeable form. It's just some impermanent thing that's happening. There's no such thing as a agreeable sound or a disagreeable sound. It's just sound and that is impermanent. There's no longer a agreeable odor or a disagreeable odor. The mind eventually gets to the point where you train so well, having cut off the bodily sensations, that it's just an odor, something that you smell. You recognize it as impermanence and the mind doesn't agree with it. It doesn't disagree with it. It's just an odor. It's just an impermanent thing. And the mind isn't influenced or affected either way by the agreeable aspects or disagreeables. It's just a form, a sound, an odor, a flavor, physical object, and mental object. So here, that's what he's talking about is abandoning this favoring and opposing, this agreeable, disagreeable, this pleasing and displeasing. If you train the mind to that point, then you'll be able to not hold on to these pleasant feelings or painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and you can eliminate the discontent in this that way. Then what the Buddha goes into is he kind of starts talking a little bit about what we call dependent origination. In volume five, we're going to be talking about dependent origination. Just briefly, it's an ultimate cause and effect, a chain of events that starts with ignorance, a knowing of true reality, and ends up with discontentedness. He shows the causal relationship between 12 different things that starts with ignorance, i.e. a lack of wisdom or a knowing of true reality. And through this chain of events, we cause our own discontentedness. And here he's just kind of zooming in on kind of like midway point of dependent origination, explaining how by eliminating clinging or craving and these things that the mind eliminates discontentedness. And by doing so, we eliminate birth, aging, and death. We're no longer born in the cycle of rebirth. Uh, so I think that's mostly what I was going to share here with you guys. Any questions on this one? We can move on to Miranda for chapter 39. The carrier of the burden. Monks, I will teach you the burden, the carrier of the burden, the taking up of the burden. Listen to that. And what, monks, is the burden? It should be said, the five aggregates subject to clinging. What five? The form aggregate subject to clinging, the feeling aggregate subject to clinging, the perception aggregate subject to clinging, the volitional formations, choices or decisions, aggregate subject to clinging, the consciousness aggregate subject to clinging. This is called the burden. And what monks is the carrier of the burden? It should be said, the person, this venerable one of such a name and clan, this is called the carrier of the burden. 
and what monks is the taking up of the burden. It is this craving that leads to renewed existence accompanied by excitement and desire, seeking excitement here and there, that is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. This is called the taking up of the burden. Okay, thank you, Miranda. There's different places in the Buddhist teachings where he talks about the burden and carrying the burden. So here he's describing, you know, what that is. The burden is carrying around these five aggregates, right? These five aggregates is what makes a being a being. The five aggregates are form, feeling, perceptions, relational formations, or choices, decisions, and consciousness. The form aggregate is this physical body. That's what we call the form aggregate. And what an aggregate is, is a collection or elements. So there's all these various things that had to come together to create this physical form. So that's one item that creates a living being is there needs to be physical form. Well, humans have physical form. Animals have physical form. There's even form like a tree has a form. This book has form. There's lots of things that have form. But beings in hell, beings in afflicted spirits, and beings in the heavenly realm, they don't have form. They don't have physical form. Okay. Then there's feelings. The feelings aggregate. This is like things that we experience in the mind. So while something might have form, like this book, it doesn't have feelings. That's how we know this isn't a living being. And it doesn't have all these other things either. Just like a tree. You know, some people say trees have feelings, but I would say they don't. But here's the other things that trees don't have too, which is part of these five aggregates. But human beings and animals, for example, do have feelings. So we have this collection of feelings in the mind. Perceptions are how the mind perceives things to be, like beliefs or opinions, how the, the mind views things in the world. Like you might have a perception of your life partner or your children or your friends or your neighbors. And that perception may be true. It may be false. You, you don't necessarily know. So there are certain perceptions that a living being is going to have. And then there's volitional formations or certain choices or decisions. So like, for example, a tree can't make the choice or decision to stand up, walk 100 meters and replant itself. That's how we know that tree is not a living being. While we might consider it to be alive in some respects, it doesn't have the five aggregates. So therefore, it's not a living being. And this fifth one, this fifth aggregate is consciousness or the mind. These are the five things that create a living being. So this is the burden carrying around. There's this physical form. There's this mind that's come together. And in this mind, there's feelings, there's perceptions, and there's choices and decisions or volitional formations. Those five things combined is the burden. Okay. Then the carrier of the burden is the person. So the Buddha is calling kind of like this third entity it's not the body, it's not the mind, it's also not the feelings, perceptions, or relational formations. It's like this third entity that he's calling the person. This is what's carrying the burden. And then the taking up of that burden, essentially, what is it that leads to birth and its craving? It is that craving that leads to renewed existence, accompanied by excitement and desire 
excitement here and there that is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, or craving for extermination, extermination of life, right? So this is where the mind's not in the middle. Either the mind's craving for existence, I want to exist in this world, or I don't want to exist in this world, right? The mind's not content in the middle, and it's craving these sensual pleasures, right? The Buddha talks about these in his Four Noble Truths, these here, right? So this is what creates renewed existence. This is what creates rebirth. You'll see other places where he says specifically, craving is the fuel that causes rebirth, but that's what he's pointing to here. He's showing you that craving is what causes rebirth. In other places, he talks about it as causing discontentedness, but here he's also talking about it as causing rebirth. And it's because of this craving that there's continued existence. We keep taking up these five aggregates over and over and over again. Each time we're reborn into a form realm, we keep picking up these five aggregates. We keep picking up this burden over and over and over again. And it's not until we lay down craving, desire, attachment that we lay down the burden. Any questions on this one? For clarification, teacher, the five aggregates make a, or what uh, makes a human being a human being or an animal an animal. The question is, if the Buddha was teaching this to a heavenly being, would he say, heavenly being, these are the four aggregates that make a heavenly being a, a heavenly being. Feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness. If he's going to teach the five aggregates, it's going to be these five. I'm not sure, you know, what he taught the heavenly beings about the five aggregates, but the heavenly beings aren't going to have form, but they're a a heavenly being. They're going to have all these others, these four. Luckily, you're in the human realm, so you don't have to focus on the human realm. Yeah, exactly. Sounds good, sir. All right, over to Bob. Well, elimination of craving is called the lying down of the burden. And what monks at the lying down of the burden? It is the remainderless, fading away and elimination of that same craving, the giving up and letting go of it, freedom from, from it, non-reliance on it. This is called the lying down of the burden. This is what the perfectly enlightened one said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this. The five aggregates are truly burdens. The burden carrier is a person. Taking up the burden is discontentedness in the world. Laying the burden down is joyful. Having laid the heavy burden down without taking up another burden, having taken out craving from its root, one is free from hunger, fully extinguished. Okay, so here this is just a connection to the last one where he's saying, okay, you know, eliminating craving is laying down the burden and you give it up, you let it go, you get this freedom, this liberation, you're not relying on this craving that you can reside in the present moment with a mind in the middle, not longing through all these six sense spaces, you know, craving pleasant feelings. That's laying down the burden because it's really tiresome to pursue all that craving that we did at one point in our life, it's just craving, 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 craving. It exhausts the mind. 
having to do that, right? So you can lay this down by training the mind and eliminating the craving. And then the Buddha says, okay, you know, essentially once this craving is laid down, he's explaining and kind of summarizing what he said previously, that the five aggregates are truly burdens. The burden carrier is the person. Taking up the burden is discontentedness in the world. Because if you experience rebirth and you're taking up these five aggregates, which is the burden, then you're going to experience discontentedness in the world. But laying the burden down can be joyful. This is where when you're eliminating attachments, sometimes it's very painful. It's a real struggle. It's very difficult. And the mind can be almost experiencing like mental pain when you're starting to strip away some of these craving desire attachments. But once you finally let it down and you put down a certain craving, joy can spring up in the mind. You might notice that. That's where the mind can kind of swing. If the mind's like really sad as you're peeling away craving desire attachments and it's really painful and it's a struggle, once that craving really lets go out of the mind, the mind can kind of swing to being very joyful. And this is where you kind of have to stabilize it and bring it to the middle, okay? Because you'll experience this joy through this release of craving, desire, attachment. Having laid down the heavy burden, so having laid down all of these five aggregates without taking up another burden, without taking up another life, having taken out craving from its root, deeply in the mind, breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing generosity, eliminating craving, desire, attachment, taking it out of from the root of the mind. Now one is free from hunger, no longer longing, hungry, craving, wanting pleasant feelings through these six sense bases. One is free from hunger, right? Fully extinguished. Craving is fully extinguished. The mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. Okay, that's what he's talking about here. All right, any questions on this one? No questions, teacher. All right, so it looks like you guys are studying along quite well. Next week, we're going to be doing chapters 41 all the way to chapter 51. This book ends in chapter 51. So rather than just do 41 to 50 with one more chapter left over, let's do chapter 41 all the way to 51. And that will give us 11 chapters to study next week. Do you guys have any questions at all related to the program or how things are going for you or how the books are laid out or anything that you're seeing that you're not quite sure some of the annotations in the book and how things are being laid out? No? Okay. So then what I'll do is I'll just end class here and wish you guys a very lovely rest of your day. So continue to enjoy reading. And remember, if you read just, you know, kind of two chapters a day, you know, one or two chapters a day, the, the Buddha's words and the explanations, and then just sit on that for a day so that you can just kind of contemplate that. You can reflect on that. You can think about it, maybe even implement it in your practice. Think about any questions that you might have that you would like to get answered about that. That way, it kind of these teachings slowly trickle into the mind. Because if you sit down in one sitting and you try to read, reflect, and practice, you know, 10 chapters at a time, it can be quite a lot. So if you just do kind of one per day, two per day, 
then it'll kind of slowly trickle into the mind, much like an IV that if you had an IV drip hooked up to the body, it would just drip slowly throughout the day. So that's what you're doing throughout your week. You're just kind of slowly dripping these teachings in, and then you'll be able to retain them longer term, and then that way you'll be able to actually practice them. So tomorrow in our class, Nick, I see you have your hand up. Yeah, the, the, what you just said, that brings up a question. Um, mm -hmm. Do you suggest reviewing old chapters, like maybe going back, uh, once we get up to say chapter 30, and going back over the first 10 if we have extra time, and then if we're on chapter 40, maybe rereading the chapters 10 through 20, something like that, to keep it, like review. Do you, do you recommend that? Yeah, repetition is very important. And that's why when the Buddha used to teach in the oral tradition, you can see his discourses. He's constantly repeating himself over and over and over and over again. Uh, put your mute on for a second, Nick. <laughs> um, you'll see the Buddha's teachings. When he teaches, he does repetition. He's repeating similar things over and over and over and over and over and over again because that's how you more firmly rooted in the mind. So with you guys having these in written format, you can read them more than one time and that will help, that repetition will help to soak it into the mind. And some of these chapters are repeated throughout the book series. You'll see some of these chapters that are in two or three of the different books. And that's part of the way of ensuring that you use repetition to soak it into the mind. But if you've got extra time and you can build in some repetition into your reading, then yeah, go for it. That would be ideal. All right. So tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be studying the five hindrances. But as I introduce the five hindrances, we're also going to be talking about the seven factors of enlightenment because the seven factors are, of enlightenment are a lot of the remedies or the antidotes or the ways to resolve the five hindrances. So we're going to be studying the seven factors of enlightenment first, then we're going to be studying the five hindrances. And that's really truly the last class of the group learning program. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be restarting the program from the very beginning with anybody who joins and any new students who join. So you're welcome to restart the group learning program on Wednesday. Then next Saturday, we're going to be doing chapters 41 through 51 in this class. So remember to keep your meditation practice going two to three times a day and building that up as close or beyond to 30 minutes as possible. And just continue to stay dedicated to it. And as you guys have questions, feel free to post those in Facebook, ask questions in these classes reach out to me with a private message or schedule a personal guidance session where you can get customized guidance about these teachings. Because now that you're studying at a higher level than you were in the group learning program, you might need you know, some personal guidance here and there on various things that you're learning in these chapters. You know, Try to get your questions answered through the other means as well. But just remember, you've always got that personal guidance available to you as it relates to anything that you're learning along these paths. But specifically now that you're getting into some more meaty topics, like the five aggregates, you know, you have to understand that in order to attain enlightenment. And maybe you just need to sit with it and really talk to me personally and have me really cater to your understanding and really help you build up the five aggregates. When we get to dependent origination in, in volume five, you really have to understand the 
dependent origination in order to attain enlightenment. Those four foundations of mindfulness, you're going to have to understand those in order to get to enlightenment. So some of these bigger topics that are now being introduced as part of this program, you might need some one-on-one -on -one guidance or maybe even in one of these classes, you might say, hey, David, can you just take some time to really deeply explain the five aggregates to us or the four foundations of mindfulness or dependent origination when we get to that? Make sure that you're not just moving on to the next chapter, that you truly understand something like the five aggregates, the four foundations of mindfulness, independent origination, because these are like some really important teachings. And these are kind of like the most involved that the Buddhist teachings really get. If you can understand the four foundations of mindfulness, the five aggregates, the six sense bases, and dependent origination, those are kind of like the meteor of all the meaty topics of the Buddhas. The other stuff, like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, these things are pretty straightforward. But these other teachings tend to be teachings that you really have to wrap your mind around. And it might take you several weeks and several months for you to come into a full understanding of what these are. And one of the best ways to get a full understanding of it is, yes, to learn it. Yes, reflect on it, but then put it into practice. So when we're talking about the four foundations of mindfulness, and I talk about bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind, and mental objects, you can observe this about your own mind, that you can see this process happening. When discontentedness arises, notice the bodily sensations. Notice how it comes into feelings. Notice how it affects the condition of the mind for multiple hours or days. Notice how there might be a mental object of ill will, for example, or complacency or something like that in the mind. When we talk about the five aggregates, rather than just, okay, yeah, that's nice, teacher. Thank you for reading that chapter and teaching it to us. Really look, be like, okay, yeah, there's the physical form. There's the form aggregate. Yep, I feel it. Okay, this feelings aggregate. Oh, yeah, there's those feelings. Yep, I've had those. Oh, perceptions, beliefs, opinions. Yep, had those too. Okay, volitional formations, choices and decisions. Yep, you know that you have those choices and decisions. That's something that you do. Oh, the consciousness, the mind. Yep, there it is. So rather than just believing it, you learn it and you reflect on it. You look inward and you see, is this really true? And then you start practicing it and see how something like the five aggregates, if you hold on to this form and you cling to it, wanting this physical form to look a certain way, then it's going to cause discontentedness. If you cling and hold on to your feelings, it's going to create discontentedness. If you cling and hold on to your perceptions about what you believe, what your opinions are, what your views are, if you hold on to those, then it's going to create arguments, right? Then your decisions, volitional formations, if you make certain decisions and you're trying to hold on to your decisions really tightly, or the people around you are holding on to their decisions really tightly, and you see that it's causing them discontentedness. And then the same thing with the mind, it's holding on to this mind. So rather than just, okay, that's interesting, the five aggregates, okay, you move this into practice where you can observe in real life how the Buddha is truly, truly, truly explaining the natural laws of existence, of what exists in this world. 
And because you're existing in this world, because you're a living being, you have the five aggregates. You can investigate and examine that. You have the six sense bases. You can investigate and examine that. You experience these four foundations of mindfulness. And we can go right on down the line. So don't just you know, study them to study them. But as you're reading about these things, sometimes you need to pause and just kind of think about it and kind of look for it in the world. Like, where is it? Where are these five aggregates? Let me see if I can observe them. Or where are these four foundations of mindfulness? Let me see if I can observe that that's the truth. And by doing that, it will soak the wisdom into the mind that you know without a shadow of a doubt that you've got this truth and you've got this wisdom that you've seen it with your own eyes, these five aggregates. You've seen it with your own eyes, these four foundations of mindfulness. You've seen it with your own eyes, these six sense bases. And then when we get to dependent origination, you'll see that series of events that the Buddha talks about one by one by one. So be sure you do that inner reflection and you look for the truth to acquire the wisdom. And it's going to take you maybe weeks or months and maybe some personal guidance to be able to get to that. So just let me know where you need help. So I'll see you in a future class. Have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadihap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.